Well, hi again. We're in Ephesians today, and we're looking at prayer. We all imagine we know what prayer is, but what does the Bible define prayer as, and how should we pray? It's what we're looking at together today. Let me tell you about a friend of mine from the UK. I won't mention his name just to save embarrassment, but I once took him round to my family's house for a, an Indian or a Bangladeshi meal. And as we sat at the table and waited for the food to be brought in, different elements, uh, the accompaniments, were being brought in and placed on the table. And at this stage, a plate of chilies uh, were brought in and placed there for those members of my family who could take raw chilies with their food. And my friend there, as soon as he spotted these chilies, without even thinking what they were, he instinctively reached out his hand and grabbed a chilli, put it straight into his mouth and began chewing. Well, I was watching on, so were some younger members of my family, in absolute shock and astonishment, as for about two seconds he was merrily chewing away until it hit him. <laughs> and he was chewing a chilli, and boy, you should have seen his response. It was hilarious. My little niece, I remember, uh, uh, used to talk about it for weeks afterwards, about that man who ate the raw chilli. My friend did, you see, what was instinctive for him to do in an environment where he enjoyed food and food was placed before him. He just reached out and grabbed it. Instinct is a key thing. Look, if you're walking along and, and you trip, you instinctively reach out and stop yourself from getting injured. If you're swimming in the great ocean and you see uh, a large fish creature swimming towards you, you swim back towards the shore, you swim for your life. Uh, I know that's what I did last year on my birthday when I was out uh, surfing or trying to surf. I want to ask, what's our instinctives when when we're faced with calamity, you lose your job. What's the first response? Is it, is it to panic? Is it to get on the internet and try and find a new job as quickly as we possibly can? Is it to despair, give up? What is that instinctive response when we're faced with calamity? It ought to be, isn't it? Our basic instinct in every scenario, whenever we come across difficulty, ought to be to pray. And yet, so often, look, I know, I fail here, so often prayer is the last thing that we turn to. We're much quicker at turning to our own devices, at trying to deliver ourselves and engineer a way through it and prayer is always the final thing the end thing oh i guess we'll have to pray now and yet prayer should be the instinct of the christian and that's what we're looking at together we're in ephesians at the end of the book in chapter six we're told and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests so we're to pray. 
We're to be prayerful. Paul instructs the church at Ephesus to be prayerful. And back in chapter 1, it's where we are this morning. He's going to go through some of the details of prayer from his own prayers. And in showing us how he prays, Paul is essentially showing us how to pray. And so that's what we're looking at. Our heading is simple. Just one word, prayer or pray, pray. Our subheading is this, a pattern for godly prayer. A pattern for godly prayer. Verse 15, for this reason, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So it begins, for this reason. It signifies that what he's saying now relates to what's said previously. It, it's an, it signifies that it's connecting. And Paul has previously been talking about the wealth of spiritual blessings that we have as Christians, the purposes of God for us in Jesus, the blessings of election, being chosen by God, the blessings of being sons of God, or sons and daughters, if you like, redemption, revelation, the knowledge of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And all these ought to naturally lead to praise and prayer. And that's what Paul wants to show us. Notice firstly then, that faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus goes hand in hand in love for the members of his church. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, remembering you in my prayers, I remembered you in my prayers. Godly prayer then has included in it concerns for our fellow church members, brothers and sisters. It means to me that at least a part of our regular praying has to involve, include praying for our brothers and sisters, whether locally or more widely, globally, the persecuted church, for example. And so when we pray for one another, if we pray for one of the members of our church, for Lorraine, for example, our prayer ought to be for her good, for her building up in the faith for how she's doing on the journey as much as naturally we're interested in where we are on our own journey. So prayer has as a focus the needs of others as well as ourselves. And it's this habit that we ought to have as Christians. So for example, in our home groups here at the church, we take time as well as studying the Bible, which is a central part of home groups. But nevertheless, we take time to speak about how we're doing on our journey, to share with one another so that we can pray for one another. Only this week, someone mentioned in our home group how, how much they appreciate that sharing and praying time. It reminded me, the focus is to be on the Word but also on the application of that word as we minister to one another in listening and in praying. And that's what Paul is demonstrating for us here. So prayer is to also include, Paul moves on to thanksgiving. Listen, 
I have not stopped giving thanks for you. That thanksgiving is for what God is doing in the lives of these believers at Ephesus. He's thanking God for them, for it rather, because it matters to him. Elsewhere, Paul can say, Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Thanksgiving is a part, an integral part of prayer. Some of our prayer ought to be spent in thinking through and praying, or rather thanking God for what he's doing in the lives of fellow believers, even in our own lives. And so, for example, the old hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. This action of thanking God uh, not only uh, exalts God, recognises his activity in our lives, but it reminds us of what God has done for us, is doing for us. It's one of the habits I've recently taken, taken on is to daily go through and work through all the great things that God is doing in my life at present and to thank him for them. Try that. Thank you for what God is doing in a fellow believer. Notice next in verse 17 some of the detail of Paul's prayers. I keep asking God that the God, sorry, I'll start again. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, and he continues. So do you notice how Paul directs his prayers? He's praying to God the Father. It's very specific how Paul prays. And remember, everything Paul is doing is illustrating for us how we ought to do it. To whom do prayers belong? It's something we get confused about as Christians, isn't it? It's something I often get asked. You know, who do we pray to? Do we pray to the Father, God? Uh, do we pray to the Son, Jesus? Or do we pray to the Holy Spirit? And in one sense, yes, 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 uh, prayers can have uh, be directed to different different persons of the Trinity, I suppose. And I don't think we should be too rigid, but the general pattern, it seems in Scripture, what Paul exonerates in what he does, and it seems to be picking up from what Jesus demonstrated for us. For example, Paul can say, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father. And then in Matthew 6, Jesus said, This then is how you should pray, our Father. So let me ask you, how are you addressing God? The way Paul demonstrates for us, the way Jesus instructs us, this then is how you should pray is that prayers are addressed, generally at least, to Father, to God as Father. You see, the, the, the thing about just referring to him as God, it's distant. It, it overemphasizes his transcendency. He's a, he is transcendent. He is high and exalted, and God encapsulates all that. But in our relationship to this divine, it's much deeper, much more intimate, much more real tangible, close, than God, mere God, if you like, is Father. Can you see the amazing condescension in God calling us 
to speak to him and refer to him as father speaks of deepest relationship of all the mediums that God could have chosen to relate to his creation I sometimes watch a comedy called Third Rock from the Sun and, and they're a group of aliens here and they're visiting Earth and and they disguise themselves as a human family so they can integrate and they can uh, sample earthly life and take a report back to their home planet and there's different members of this team and the top member, the high commander, is Dick. Hilarious. I love the series. Uh, but Dick is always emphasising that he's the high commander, always gloating and revelling in his position and using it. Okay, He wants his crew to know, always to know, that he's the high commander. It's funny. The wonderful thing about our God he isn't issuing these commands as the high commander. He could do. He's within his right to do so. He is indeed the high commander of the universe. And yet, he chooses to relate to those who love him and believe in him through the medium of a parent-child relationship. This then is how you should pray, says Jesus, our Father. Can you see what that does to our relationship and certainly to our prayer? Here's someone that we can relate to, who loves us, forgives us, is patient with us, doesn't hold grudges. What good father holds grudges against his children? Is someone you can't ward off. What good father would cut off his children if they misbehave? This is a relationship that goes beyond our sin, beyond our failure, beyond our straying. It lasts. Verse 17. May, you give, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So in prayer, we're wanting, Paul is wanting for the church at Ephesus that they may have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. This is the Holy Spirit. And he wants them to have more of him, to have an increased measure, an increased filling, increased encounter, experience of God's Spirit. Here's what the commentator Turner writes. Note the purpose of the request is not for special information, but deeper perception and knowledge of God himself. So this isn't necessarily for, for me to have the Spirit so that I may acquire knowledge of the future, though the Spirit can impart that to us. But what's in view here is of a deeper perception, experience, knowledge of the Father. The Spirit's purpose in the Christian's life, at least one of those purposes, there are many purposes, is that He may show us God increasingly, but not just in isolation, that he may show us God in the light of Jesus Christ. God, as we see him exhibited in Jesus Christ, the perfect revelation of God. Here's what Jesus himself said. He said this to Philip. Philip asked him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. I spent all this time with Jesus, with who they really wanted to see who they really wanted to engage with. 
It wasn't just another prophet, another holy man, another special anointed man. They wanted God himself. It's understandable. And Jesus says these words. It's amazing. Philip. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Philip, don't you understand that everything the Father is resides in me? I am not just a partial image of God. I am the very image of the invisible God. You see, and the Spirit's role, the Holy Spirit's role in the believer is to point us to Jesus so that we may see God in Jesus, to see those qualities, the perfect image of the invisible being. And the net result, the net result of having the Spirit in our hearts or being filled with the Spirit, Spirit is this intimate knowledge of God. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. Know Him better. Know Him in increasing measure. The commentator folks writes, the personal knowledge of God himself, which, is, which in the Bible always connotes the, ex, the experience of life in union and fellowship with him. And another commentator, Barker, Revelation refers here to the insight and discernment that the Spirit brings into the mysteries of the divine truth. That we learn the most profound and incredible truths, details, of God through the Spirit of work in us as He points us to Jesus. I remember a couple of weeks back we watched uh, one of these kids' animation films uh, together called Boonie Bears. This one was Boonie Bears uh, and the Big Shrink. In it, there's a character, he's a uh, woodlogger, uh, uh, his name is Vic, and he's, he's at odds with his father. Uh, through some difficulties in in his childhood. And now as a young adult, his father decides to try and fix this relationship, realising how mean and awful he'd been to his son at times. So he turns up to his place and has a checklist of all these things he wants to do, play ball and so forth, as he tries to mend this relationship because he wants his son to know what he's really like that he really cares for him, really loves him. God has sent his son into the world to reveal himself to you, that you will know what he's really like, that all the guessing games that have to stop that you'd stop cursing him and imagining that he's, he's aloof and distant, alienated from you. He sent his son that you may know him because the, the greatest, the, the saddest reality of human existence is that we don't know 
God. We don't really know him. It's what Jesus prayed. John 17, righteous father, the world does not know you. It's why they talk about him the way they do. It's why they use his name as a swear word. It's why they don't want any part of him in their lives. It's why they run from him, curse him, swear at him, shake their fists at him. It's because they don't really know him. If they did, if they only look at Jesus in the power of the Spirit, they would see. And so prayer has has at the heart of it this petition for the Spirit to be working in the Christian's life so that we may know more of God, more of what He's like. So Christian, let the Spirit work in your heart. Let Him lead you to Jesus through His Word. Explore Jesus. Read the Gospels. Read them over and over again. See what He's like. See what His movements are like. See how He reacts to people, how He reacts to sinful people, to hypocrites, to those who need mercy, to those who need healing, to those who are bereaved, to those who are hurting, to those who are hungry, to those who are searching and hungry and looking for fulfillment in, fulfillment in all the wrong places. Watch him. And you'll see God. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 18, notice, I pray also that the eyes of your faith, or the eyes of your heart, may be enlightened. It's just a reference to enlightenment, inner enlightenment. Not the type you get from meditation by emptying your mind. Who knows what may fill it? (laughs) Who knows what may fill mine? I mean, uh, a nice mango uh, or a coconut uh, or something uh, that we're craving at the time. Look, this is a reference to been enlightened to the divine, more of God. And he expands on it, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and see his his incomparably great power for us who believe. It's loaded. Let me break it down for you into, into three parts. Part A, God has called you, Christian. God has called you to faith, to a future with him that you may know the hope which he has called you, the hope to which he has called you. Here's what's at the centre of your faith. Hope here is much stronger than, than we use. Look, I could say, I hope I do well in my exams. It's just hope. If I haven't studied well, if I haven't revised well, no matter how much I hope, it's not going to make a difference. But hope in scriptural terms is real, is stronger, it's certain. And so the hope here is the certainty of our salvation, the certainty of our hope of spending eternity with God. There are going not going to be surprises for the Christian. Let me tell you that, Christian. Don't sit there, don't walk through your Christian life for fear of surprises. Jesus wants you to have the assurance that Matthew 28, I am with you always to the end of the ages, walking with you, walking the journey with you. He's not going to let you go. There aren't going to be any any terrible shock surprises for you. He has your life in his hand and your future in his hand. And he wants you to know the hope that he has, that you have rather, that he's called you to. 
Secondly, the future to which we are called to is a glorious inheritance. Notice the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Here's what a commentator writes. It's essential quality as life in God forever. That's what he wants us to get it to terms with. Our inheritance, friends, is a new heaven and earth, is a new paradise, not the suburb, the new earth, okay? But it's not really the centre of our faith. Heaven is our reality, a new earth, but ultimately the centre of our faith, the riches of his glorious inheritance, isn't merely a new world, which is going to be great. It's an intimate knowledge and acquaintance of God. God ultimately is our inheritance. He is our future. Heaven really is an experience, an existence with God. There's a lovely lady in our one of our churches back in the UK, who always used to finish her prayers with John 17. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you. Or she used to say that you may know you, whom to know is God eternal. How she quoted it. She captured in that something of the gospel. You see, real eternal life, the real hope to which we've been called to, is more than a paradise new planet. It's God himself. He's our inheritance. That's the gospel. That's your future. And see, the immeasurable greatness of his power, his incomparably great power for us who believe. The burden of Paul's prayer is that they may know the mighty power of God, the Ephesians, that is in operation in them, that is a work in their lives. That they may know the extent of that power. How great it is, what it can accomplish, what it can do. And so let me ask you this question, Christian. In the light of this great power that is at work in us, what kind of prayers ought ought we to pray? How ought we to pray? How grand should our prayers be? Here's one one, one preacher, uh, this stuck in my mind when I read it uh, once in a book. Uh, one preacher says, here's what one, one preacher writes. If we have the audacity to ask, God has the ability to perform. Did you hear that? If we have the audacity to ask, God has the audacity to perform. So the question is, what audacious Prayer, what impossible prayer am I praying? Are you praying? And why aren't you praying them? Why aren't we praying? That's a question. Why aren't we praying audacious prayers? If our prayers are simply things that we can do ourselves, why pray? Hey Christian, will you pray? Be audacious. Ask for the impossible. Ask for the huge things. The great things. Ask God to show the extent of his power in your prayer. Here's, a, here's what God can do with his, with his power. This is an example of it. The rest of the, of the verse, of the passage. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. What can God's power do? It can raise the dead to life 
after they have decomposed. What can the power of God do in your life? He can answer your most audacious prayer, your most impossible prayer, your most unbelievable thing, the thing you daren't ask Him, the thing you'd be embarrassed to share with anybody because they think you're foolish. As I said earlier, if we have the audacity to ask, God has the ability to perform a pattern for godly prayer. I want to close and let me wrap this up. Prayer then is that we may know godly prayer in increasing measure the salvation to which we've been called to. It's about knowing the power of God that is a work in us. It's about knowing God more and looking forward to an eternity with him. So, pray for one another. Pray that we may each know more of his power, more of Jesus, more of the Spirit's presence in our life, more of his provision, of his healing, of his equipping, of his joy and of his purposes being fulfilled in our lives. Pray. Pray daily. Pray even hourly. Pray. God is never, is never unhappy to hear from you. No matter how much you talk. I know Jesus says don't babble, but his point was don't just go on endlessly thinking that you're winning favour with God by babbling. But if you want to talk to God 24-7, if that was possible... Do it. He loves to hear your voice. What father, what parent, what mother doesn't like hearing their kids speak? Speak to him. Praise him. Give him thanks. Call his power into your life. Ask him great things. For yourself. For your brothers and sisters. And may the God who has ears to hear and as the power to back up who he is, answer your prayers in the most incredible way for his glory. Paul writes, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Amen.